a reading from Micah. Hear what the Lord says, rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I have brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, Remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. A reading from Corinthians. The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to all who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> One of the hazards of working with young people is that you might start talking like them. Not that there's anything wrong with the way young people talk, as if the slang of today is somehow inferior to the slang of yesterday, but it's just that when you get back around people your own age, you don't come off very good when you start talking uh, like you're younger than you are. And recently there was this trend to hashtag life goals. You'd see on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram some picture or story of something you wanted to achieve and young people would put hashtag life goals. And it got to the point that even if you talked about something that they wanted to achieve, they would say hashtag life goals. And I said to myself, I'm not doing this one. I'm not hashtagging life goals. And then someone put this video of this dancer doing this awesome dance up on Facebook and... Hashtag life goals, it was all over. And that's how most Christians, I think, treat the Beatitudes, the blesseds we heard from today. As life goals, as commandments, as ways we should seek to be. But the problem is, is that many of the Beatitudes don't function very well as goals. Take blessed, blessed are the meek. Meekness is not a moral achievement. It's a state of being in which you find yourself. Some people find themselves meek at some times at others, and some people just are naturally meek. Meekness is not a good life goal to have. There are plenty of times when meekness is not called for. When there is great evil or suffering or oppression, it is not time to be meek. It is time to be bold. Take blessed are the poor. Now, in Luke, it says, blessed are the poor. In Matthew, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But most scholars agree that this is pretty much the same thing, that Matthew is just taking it one step further. To say, blessed are the poor in spirit are people who are so poor, so deprived, that they literally have no breath left. Anybody who's ever been hungry or homeless knows the madness of commanding people to be poor. And I don't want to mince words here. The Beatitudes have at times been destructive in church history. There have been many women who have gone into a church to seek out a pastor or a priest because they were being abused by their husbands and they were told, blessed are the meek. There are people who fought for basic human rights who were told, blessed are the poor. These do not work as commandments. But the problem is, is that there are other Beatitudes that we do take as life goals. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Peacemaking. 
Moreover, the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount seeks to paint Jesus in the mold of Moses bringing the law down from Sinai. The Beatitudes serve as a correlative to the Ten Commandments. These words are meant to be morally relevant. So how do we make them morally relevant without turning them into absurd commandments? I think I found the answer a few years ago in Peter Berger, who is a sociologist, philosopher, and theologian. Berger talks about two forms of moral discourse, two ways in which we talk about ethics. The first way, the way we're most familiar with, is prescriptive. It prescribes behavior. Do this, don't do that. You ought to do this, you ought not to do that. It is understandable intellectually and it appears, appeals to the intellect. And it usually takes the form of cause and consequence. Honor your father and mother and it will go well for you and your children. Don't disobey these laws and your crops will grow. Love each other and society will run better. But there is another form of moral discourse which we, with which we are not as familiar It doesn't appeal to the mind, but appeals to the heart. It seeks to change the way people see things, to change the way people experience things. This form of moral discourse is descriptive rather than prescriptive. It doesn't say, do this, do that. It says, look at this and look at that. Berger uses as his supreme example Uncle Tom's Cabin, which had an important influence on the abolition movement in this country. He points out that it affected change not through long arguments about the evils of slavery, but rather by presenting those evils in the starkest way possible and presenting the humanity of the people upon whom those evils were visited. And thereby it motivated people to affect change. You see, that's the problem with prescriptive language. Appealing to the intellect, one can always take the position of the skeptic and ask, well, why should I care about that? Why should I care that it goes well for me and my children? Why should I care that my crops grow? Why should I care that society runs better? We may take these to be silly questions, but it's always possible in an intellectual endeavor to take the point of view of a skeptic and ask those questions. And ultimately, there are no easy answers. And there have been many great and important moral issues upon which people debated and talked and talked and did nothing. What they needed was not one more argument, but a new way of seeing things. And I think this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about wisdom and foolishness. Paul's words, too, have been destructive at times in history. There have been pockets within Christianity that support a kind of cult of ignorance. But Paul is not opposed to learning. What he's pointing out is that there are truths that appeal to something deeper, that the simplest among us may grasp more easily than the more educated. Some people who might not be the most classically intelligent are the best at doing the right thing when it's time to do it. And it is this descriptive moral language that I think is going on in the Beatitudes, and if I had to have time, I'd argue it's what's going on in the entire Sermon on the Mount. You see, the Beatitudes include groups of people that we naturally know are associated with God. 
people who have achieved morally, we look at those groups of people and we say, yes, in that I have something to learn. In that there is the treasure of the divine I seek. But the poor and the meek and the vulnerable were not at Jesus' time, naturally thought to be revelations of the same divine reality. Most people who were in a bad situation were looked at as punished by God or gods. By putting those two groups of people together, Jesus is saying about those outsiders, look again. Because in those people is the very kingdom of God, the inheritance of the earth, the presence of the divine. In the people you have ignored, you have missed something important. And the truth is that Jesus' words worked. Most of us know or recognize that in the vulnerable, God is present. We may not always act on it, but as Christians, we've come to accept it. We all still have individuals and groups of people that are for us outside. People that we categorize as those who have nothing to teach us, especially about God. And Jesus' words here should serve to tell us to look again. That in the people we have ignored, there is the very treasure we seek in all the people we seek to learn from. And i got to tell you, my reasoning mind, my intellect is very good at categorizing people. I'm very good at judging who I can learn from and who I can't. Where I can find God and where I can't. In different groups and in individuals. But there is a knowledge in my heart that constantly reminds me to look Again, because when I pass those people by, I pass by a treasure I may not get a chance at again. In the end, it's probably not possible to follow all of God's commandments for our lives. We are sinners, and we're going to tend to make the same mistakes over and over again. But I believe it is possible, at least at times, to see the way God wants us to see and to look at people, all people, the way God wants us to look at them. Hashtag life goals. Amen.